I'm reading this morning from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. You can look on your phone. You look in the bulletin or also open up to your Bibles. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. After this time was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which was five roof colonnades. To these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had already been there a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. When I'm going, some, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Sir, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father was working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. Leading us in prayer and reading scripture for us as well. Uh, we are once again making our way through the gospel according to John. For those of you who are guests with us uh, this morning... Uh, just to orient you a little bit, what we're doing is, is we're looking at a number of encounters that Jesus has with various individuals as recorded in the gospel according to John. And the reason is, is because only when you know a person can you love a person. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to love Jesus some of us are new to the Christian faith. We don't know a lot about Jesus. And so our love for him is, while sincere, somewhat immature, perhaps. Some of us are uh, 
veterans of the Christian faith, and just like uh, veterans of any marriage know, would know, if you want to maintain that spark of loving relationship, you need to be constantly reconnecting with your spouse. And so we are reconnecting with Jesus in these stories that we're reading in the Gospel according to John. And what we've seen is that Jesus surprises. He surprises all the time. With Nicodemus, we see that Jesus goes deeper than we think we need to go. Nicodemus wants to uh, get a little bit of teaching from Jesus and learn a little bit about religion from Jesus and maybe ethics from Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to be born again, buddy. Whoa, that's more than he bargained for. And he offers more than we uh, are looking for as well. We saw that last time with the Samaritan woman. There's Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. They're talking about being thirsty and having to draw water. And she thinks it's a pain to go get water from the well all the time. And Jesus says, I have, I have a water that will become a spring in you, live, welling up to eternal life. And that's more than she bargained for as well. What we're going to see this morning as we look at John 5 together is that Jesus doesn't just offer more and go deeper in our lives. He also expects more, perhaps, than we bargained for. That Jesus has expectations of us. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then he has expectations of you. He offers things to you. He, he's, he provides things for you. But he also has expectations of you. If you look at vo- verse 14 of the passage, Jesus says to this man whom he's just uh, healed only a few minutes earlier, he says, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Whoa. <laughs> now we're going to unpack what Jesus is talking about there in a few minutes. But for now understand that that Jesus healed this man for a reason for a purpose when you come to Jesus and you uh, engage Jesus and perhaps come to faith in Jesus Christ you are not allowed to just sort of go off on your own and do your own thing no Jesus Jesus cannot be treated that way because Jesus Christ is Lord Lord meaning master meaning king meaning he's the one in charge of our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this theme a little bit in these verses together. We're going to see that, that there's two expectations. I'm sure there's more, but in this passage, we're just going to focus on two expectations that Jesus has of all those whom he heals. And when I say heal, I mean saves. Okay? Two expectations. The first one you can see in your outline, is that he commits us to fight the sin within. See that on the back of your bulletin? He commits us to fight the sin within. But then also, he commits us to fight the sin without. Just those two things. Let's reflect on them together this morning. First of all, Jesus commits us to the fight with sin within. The scene is Jerusalem. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem... And there's a feast happening there, and there's lots of people around. We don't know exactly which feast Jesus was attending, but he's attending a feast there. And he ends up at this famous pool called Bethesda. And it was a pool that was believed to have healing properties. 
And that's why we read that in verse 3, uh, it says, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. So these are people with a whole variety of disabilities, and there's tons and tons of them hanging around this pool. But then in verse 5, it says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and then listen to this, and knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus zeroes in on one invalid. There's a whole multitude of invalids there with all different kinds of problems, and Jesus picks out this one guy. He selects him. This is not a coincidence. This is not Jesus kind of walking by and going, oh, there's a lot of people. Oh, look at that guy. Hmm. I'll go talk to him. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is always on a mission. And he's on a mission to pick this guy purpose. We need to read on to understand what that purpose is. Now, in verse 6, Jesus... Just a little lesson in reading the Bible here. Don't read the Bible too fast. Because this is a profound question. That if you think about it on the surface, could be construed as a dumb question, actually. Here's a guy... At a pool that's famous for having its healing properties. He's laying there. Yeah. I mean, why else would this guy be here? He's been crippled for 38 years. He's been there an awfully long time. What kind of a question is that? But this is Jesus. Jesus has never asked a stupid question in his life. Because it's Jesus. And if you skip down to verse 14... You'll see why Jesus asked this question. It says, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to to you. Jesus knows two things. He knows that this guy is an incurable cripple. That's obvious from him lying uh, for 38 years uh, uh, on a a bed and unable to walk. But he also knows that this guy is an incurable sinner. That's why Jesus heals this man. So he heals this man, and then he comes and he finds him later, and he says, listen, I gave you health. I gave you the ability to walk. I've given you this. I've saved you. Now, do not put this at risk. Don't jeopardize this gift. And you got to realize it's a gift because this man actually doesn't ever ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus asks the question. The man doesn't really answer the question. Jesus heals him anyway. And now Jesus says to him, look, something worse will happen to you if you don't repent and turn from your sin. Jesus is talking about hell, okay? He's not talking about... You know, you'll get a, a worse physical ailment. He's talking about judgment. Jesus is saying that if you don't repent, worse things will happen to you. The thing that will happen to you is, is you will be guilty of the judgment of God. Here's the principle. To be healed by Jesus necessarily commits us to a life of conflict within. It commits us to a life of conflict with the sin that's in us. Jesus intervenes in our lives. He saves us. He forgives our sins. He sets us on a new path. And he commits us to a lifelong battle with the sin that is within us. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save us from hell, right? Do you believe in that? I hope you believe in that. Jesus believed in that. But he didn't just come to save us from hell itself. He came to save us from the very things that send us to hell. Our sin. 
Now notice something, okay? Let me just clarify something. Um, this man is not crippled because he sinned. It, it's possible that there are, uh, there are consequences to our sin, obviously, right? You know, if you abuse alcohol, for example, you can, you can end up with liver disease. So that certainly can happen. But Jesus is, is laying an expectation here, an expectation on those whom he does say. He says, you need to fight the sin that, that lives within you. So now we start to understand why Jesus asks this question. That looks like a silly question, but isn't a silly question. It's actually a profound question. Do you want to be healed? Because Jesus is not just talking about his inability to walk. He's asking him, do you want to be rid of your sin forever? And of course I do. Because human beings are weird. We are weird. Have you ever known someone who's dealing with a particular sin. It's a, it's a dangerous sin. It seems to be a deadly sin. It's a destructive sin. You know about it. They know about it. And it's affecting their relationships. It's destroying their family. It's destroying their future. It humiliates them and leads them to despair. And they may even say, I hate this sin in my life. I hate this thing that I'm doing. I, I, my life sucks because of it. it it's terrible. And yet the end of the day, even though they say they're saying all these things and they're, they're confessing all these things, they don't really want to be changed because you come to them and you offer them salvation, you may offer them a way out and they will not take it. They won't let it go. Why is that? What's wrong with these people? Well, even when life is terrible, even if it's unbearable, human beings are creatures of habit. And human beings are creatures of the familiar and the comfortable. And even if life is terrible and unbearable, for that individual, it's a life that is known it's a life that, that you understand. So even with this man, you know, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He does not say yes. Instead, he says, what does he say in verse 7? He says, uh, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another, another steps down before me. And if you're like me, you probably read that very sympathetically, right? You're like, oh, this poor guy, you know, he really does want to be healed. But, you know, he tries to crawl to that pool, but someone gets in before him, and he's been at this maybe, I don't know, if he, he's probably not been there every day for 38 years. But every time he's been there, it hasn't worked out, and you feel bad for the guy. And you think, man, cut the guy some slack. But I had the good fortune of reading a whole bunch of commentaries. That's not, probably not an accurate take on this guy. In fact, they, they say that John purposely puts this guy kind of in a negative light. So, for example, in verse 11, um, he, uh, he gets in trouble with the religious authorities for taking up his mat, and he throws Jesus under the bus, blames Jesus for the problem. 
he's so dull that he doesn't even really know who healed him because Jesus leaves and he doesn't get his name before uh, Jesus takes off. And then when Jesus comes back to him and confronts him, then the religious leaders come back to him afterwards and he snitches on Jesus and he says, oh yeah, it was that Jesus guy who healed me. And so listen to how one scholar puts it. He says, so the answer, so the question, do you want to be healed? And the guy says, well... You know, I can't get down into the pool. Someone always gets in there before me. The answer in verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. See, the healing of this man, years he's been this way. For all intents and purposes, we can say his whole life. He doesn't know any different. This has been his routine, and it's been familiar, and even though it's been difficult, there is a comfortableness in it. And healing will mean change in his life. And that's why, if you go to people sometimes, you, I, this has actually happened, you, I've experienced this, you, you go to people today and their lives, by the way they're living, they're destroying themselves and they're destroying others, and if you ask them, do you want to be healed, they will not say yes. Because a different life to them is inconceivable, it's even, it's even terrifying. By C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Now, if you have not read The Great Divorce, please read that book. Or try to read that book. I admit not everybody's going to want to read it. But give it a try. It's short. It's like, I don't know, 140, 120, 140 pages. It's very short. And in this book, the fascinating premise is it's a story of ghosts, ghosts, souls who are in hell are given the opportunity to take a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven and see what it's like. And maybe even get a chance to go from hell to heaven if they if they so choose. Now, that part is theologically a little wonky, but just set that aside, okay? And there's one character, one ghost, who shows up at the outskirts of heaven, and he's got a red lizard on his shoulder. And that red lizard represents the sin of lust. And the scene sets up this way. They're walking on the outskirts of heaven, and they're arguing with each other. The man and the lizard, and the lizard is whispering in the man's ear, and the man's saying, shut up, just shut up. And then this, this angel, a beautiful angel, intervenes and introduces himself to, these, to this man and the lizard, and he asks the man, is that lizard bothering you? And the man's, oh, well, yeah, he kind of is, but not kind of, kind of not. His lust is a bit of a problem, but not a, not a huge problem. And, and they talk it through, and it, he discovers the, the lizard kind of controls his life, and he says, hey, you want me to kill it? And the guy goes, well, no, 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 let's not be drastic, okay? Let's not, let's not go overboard here. You know, he'll be, he'll be quiet. He'll shut up. And he goes, no, nah, he's going to be, be a problem for you your whole life. Why don't you just let me kill it? And the man, he, he hems and haws a little bit. And then finally, he sort of gives in. And he says, okay, if you're going to do it, just do it. And then the lizard speaks. And listen, he can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be, the, be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. 
He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Now, if you're a Christian, can you identify that with that in your life too? Is it not true that we, we kind of love our sin too much? You know, the sin is after us and it's messing with us and it's causing all kinds of uh, turmoil and damage and destruction in our lives and it's, it's creating shame and guilt and we are driven to call on God and cry out to Him for help and we get up the resolve and we get up and as it were we sort of drive this sin to the window and we say in the name of Jesus Christ go and never return. And it's barely over the horizon and we say hey, can you leave your phone number? Because I don't want to be out of touch completely, you know. I want you to go at this moment because you're spoiling everything. But I don't know if I want you to go forever. That's my life. Jesus asks me, do you want to be healed? And if I have to be, if I'm completely honest, I have to answer, I want to want to be. And I have to say to Jesus, I, you got to help me. You got to help me. You have got to will in me. You, you got to give me the desire. You've got to give me the strength. Because you see, Jesus' grace is not cheap. You cannot come to church, sit through a sermon, get riled up, walk up, take communion, snatch a little blessing from God, and then take off in your life and go and live it any way you please. He won't allow it. To be honest with you, this is why this is why it sometimes happens that people kind of can get religious for a while. You know, they 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 have an experience or, or they, they get riled up and they they start to to believe that Christianity is is for them and they they get really involved and they seem really fired up for the faith and all that kind of stuff and then and then you see that it just slowly starts to fade because they discover wait a minute this is more than I signed up for Jesus wants all of me every bit of me and there's parts of me I don't want to give up Jesus expects us to be in conflict with the evil within. That's the first point. Second point's a lot shorter. Jesus expects us to be in conflict and expects us to fight the sin without. In other words, when you are healed by Jesus and you come to faith in him and he saves you, then you are necessarily put in conflict with all those things that are opposed to Jesus. I don't know if I can do this with you because everybody's going to look at you. No, I can't. I can't do it. 
I can't even concentrate with you there. All right. That's okay. <laughs> he knows he's awesome. I'll be brief, but in verses 9 and 10, halfway through verse 9, it says, now that day was the Sabbath. And then in verse 10, it says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful. It was the Sabbath. Jesus purposely healed this guy on the Sabbath. He initiated the conflict. The guy's been a cripple for 38 years. You don't think Jesus could have waited 24 hours and then dropped by and said, hey, you, get up? But he didn't. He necessarily initiated this conflict. He provoked it, okay? By healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, what he's saying is, is I am Lord of the entire law, the whole Old Testament law that you Jews have been following for so long. I am master of it. I am Lord of it. I am the law giver and I am the law fulfiller, fulfiller and I have come to change the whole system. That's why in verse 18, it says that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God, his father, and making himself equal with God. They understood. Frankly, they got it. Jesus was saying that he was God. And this angered the Jews. Because there can be no compromise with Jesus. You will either have to kill him, or you will have to kneel before him. There is no third way. There is no, well, I like his teachings, but I don't like what he says about, you know, denying myself and taking up my cross and following him. You can't have it that way. And this man was caught up in the conflict. A, a great preacher, an Anglican preacher uh, from the 20th century by the name of Dick Lucas in, in, in uh, England, life back, or gets a life, right? Get a life. He gets a life. 38 years, he's been an invalid, and now he finally has some living to do. You've probably missed out on a lot of life if you've been an invalid and a cripple for 38 years. And he probably had things that he wanted to do. He probably had experiences that he wanted to, to, to undergo. He, he probably had some living he wanted to do. And, and instead, what happens is, is that he gets involved in the conflict. Who healed you? Why are you breaking the Sabbath? Who is that guy? Are you with Jesus or not? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you simply cannot avoid the conflicts that Jesus is engaged in. You have to take sides. It's like that great scene in the Lord of the Rings. I admit, this is the movie version, but it's still a great scene. In the Lord of the Rings, where the Ents are deciding whether or not to get involved in the wars of war for Middle-earth, and they, they've been kind of Switzerland for a long, long time, you know, they just never get involved, and, and finally Mary, one of the, the hobbits, when they decide that they're not going to get involved, he gets mad at them and he says, but you're part of this world! When you are healed by Christ, you are part of his agenda part of his mission. You are part of his war. And I can unpack that in all kinds of very concrete ways for you this morning, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to say to you, it is therefore no small question that Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? 
don't take the question lightly. Jesus came into this world to heal us from our sin. And he died on that cross so that we could be healed. But that's just it. We can be. See, this guy, he did absolutely nothing to deserve that healing. He didn't even, that's grace. And I'm sure that after walking around for a while, he never wanted to go back to laying on a mat in front of this pool in Bethesda. Because he was irrevocably changed, irreversibly changed. You know, the great divorce carries on in this story about the lizard. Finally, the angel wraps his fingers around the throat of the lizard. Actually, I think what he does is he breaks its back and he throws it into the bushes. And this is how Lewis describes. He says, then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, not much smaller than the angel. The man flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. Yes, Jesus expects that we fight the sin within and we fight the sin without, but listen, if he heals you, he turns you into something far greater than any of us could imagine. If you're, not, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. This isn't self-help. This isn't Tony Robbins' you know, engage the lion within or whatever, the power within stuff that he talks about. But what Tony Robbins is doing is, is he is trying to tap into a biblical truth. There is greatness in you that can't get out and you don't know why. It's sin. And when Christ pays for your sin and you embrace him by faith, he makes you great. It's not your greatness, it's his greatness. It's his, friends. Fight. Fight. You're in the fight. But you have the power of the Spirit to engage the fight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son who has done such marvelous things beyond our understanding. In this man's life, you radically changed him. And anyone who has come to faith in Jesus has been radically changed too. Father, we admit that our sin sometimes, there's an attractiveness to it. There is a, a, almost a, a sense of comfort that comes from it because it is so familiar to us and we we scarce can imagine what life would be like without it. Kill it in us, we pray. Teach us to 
to kill it by the power of your spirit. In Jesus we pray, amen.